All right. Good morning, gang. Good to see you guys. We've got a little mini sermon to get us ready. Praise the Lord for that. And uh, so uh, elementary kids, uh, so preschool to fifth grade, you guys are dismissed out the side. It looks like Pastor Chris is taking you out today. And uh, youth group, you guys are heading out with Don Jay to help get the feast together. So make sure you do stay for the feast today or the, the youth will be so upset. They, they cry when people don't come and so we, we don't want <coughs> that. So do stay uh, this afternoon. So two quick things. I'll just follow up what Don Jay shared about that 30 days to understanding the Bible uh, book. Um, we call it a class. It's not really a class. The, the book sort of speaks for itself. And if you've been through this, you know that it's a, a wonderfully um, effective book. Um, it does take you through the Bible in 30 days, in 15 minutes a day. And as Don Jay said, it kind of helps us look at the Bible kind of from 30,000 feet, which is something sometimes we miss when we're sort of slogging through verse by verse together on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. It really helps you back up and really see the big picture of the Bible and some of the main themes in the Bible and the ways that the Lord has worked uh, with his people throughout history. So I can't recommend that highly enough. Um, whether you've been in the Lord for 20 minutes or 20 years, um, you'll be blessed by this book. Uh, it's kind of one of those books that the little aha moments and the light bulb goes on for you. And that's really all we do when we get together each week, uh, get together after service and just sort of talk through the things that you read in the book that week or the ways that the Lord ministered to you uh, as you did the work. So I think it's four Sundays. It starts on the third Sunday of October, like the 22nd or something like that. Um, so even if you don't want to come and attend the little uh, discussion meetings, I would highly recommend uh, you grab the book and do it uh, with us. It will really, uh, it'll open up your understanding of the Bible, I think, in, uh, in great ways. Um, so talk to somebody who's been through the book there, who's been through that book with us in the past. So there's a handful of people here. So if you didn't raise your hand, I'm sure you're going to sign up to do it this time. That was a <clears throat> pretty effective way to figure that out this way. So um, the other thing I'll mention is as we're all at the Agape Feast this afternoon, once again, we're trying to update what is our little sort of church directory, which is just an internal thing that we use um, to pray for you guys and, and, and better minister to you guys. And Mei Ling is trying to gather some pictures. So if you're eating and she wants to take your picture, please let her uh, do that after you swallow the bite you're chewing. So uh, anyway, with that, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should have a Bible. It's a great text this morning. Um, just raise your hand. We've got Bibles that we can hand out that you can use for today. You can use the Bible on your phone if you prefer. I'm going to teach out of what's called the New King James Version, but you can look on in any version that you like. Um, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Otherwise, let's pray and just ask uh, the Lord continue to bless our time and really show us what it is uh, that he has for us today in this, uh, in this text. So, Father, we thank you so much for today. And we do thank you, Lord, for this fellowship that we share as a church family, Lord, as your people, Lord, united uh, in your Son. And so we pray, Lord, we we're thankful for this time of worship that we've had, Lord. We're, we're thankful for all of the things that you're doing through our local church body, Lord. And we're, we're thankful for the ability, Lord, the privilege that we have of studying your word uh, openly and publicly. And we pray, Lord, that as we go and, and we endeavor to do that now, Lord, we pray that you would settle our hearts 
Lord, settle our spirits. Lord, we pray that we'd be open to that ministry of your spirit as he leads and guides us into truth. And so we ask these things, Lord, and we ask for that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 12, and we're picking up in uh, chapter 12 at, you know, right about verse 18. And we're in, remember, the very final week of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. The cross is just days away now from this point. And Jesus has arrived now into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And remember, we said he's come in with these multitudes of other Passover pilgrims as they, uh, you know, go up to Jerusalem to attend that annual feast. And it was during this time on the Sunday of that week prior to the Passover that we saw that Jesus had officially presented himself, if they'd been watching, right? He had presented himself to the nation as their Messiah, as he came riding into Jerusalem down the Mount of Olives in what we often would call the triumphal entry. And then that was followed the very next day on what would be Monday of this week with the cleansing of the temple, right? The turning over of the tables and the driving out of the thieves and the money changers and all of the rest. And here now we're picking up on what is Tuesday of this Passion Week and we're joining in. And remember, we've been seeing the religious leaders of the nation. We have this sort of a ruling council called the Sanhedrin and they had found Jesus there in the temple teaching the people. And remember, we've been seeing that they've been confronting him and really challenging him. And they're in the midst of what we call this kind of a three-pronged attack against him. They're doing anything they can to try to discredit him in the eyes of the common people. Remember, the popularity of Jesus at this point is just tremendous, right? Off the charts with the common people, just growing by the day. And remember, we're right in the middle of this very heightened kind of a, you know, nationalistic celebration of the Passover, and people are eagerly embracing him, and they're expecting great things from him. But all of this was coming really at the expense of the hold that these Jewish religious leaders had over the people. So we have these three main sects of these Jewish rulers. We have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Those were the three groups that made up what that body that we called the Sanhedrin. And they're losing their power to Jesus, and they can see it slipping away. So they had devised this approach and came up with this series of these loaded questions, all to try to catch him in his words, to embarrass him publicly so that his answers would somehow divide the people, right? That the people would hear something they didn't really like for Je- that Jesus said. And so they're coming at Jesus from every angle that they can come up with. Last week, we watched what was the first unsuccessful attempt from a very unlikely pairing. Remember, we saw the Pharisees, which is a very uh, conservative sect of religious leaders, they had teamed up with the Herodians, right? Really a political party within the Jews. They supported Herod. They actually supported Rome. But they had teamed up together, this very unlikely alliance, to try to trap Jesus 
in his own words, with what was kind of a political puzzler. Remember, it was all about giving to the government and whether or not the Jews should be paying taxes unto Caesar. And of course, the answer of Jesus astounded them. The multitudes who watched on, Mark tells us, they marveled at him, no doubt as his accusers tried to slowly slip out of view, embarrassed that their plan had so badly boomeranged upon them. Now this morning, we're going to see this next group come, but not with another political puzzler. They're going to come with what we might call a doctrinal dilemma, or better, a kind of a theological trap. And we're going to see that it's going to fall flat, and it's really going to just entrap the people who tried to lay it, right? And it's going to really reveal what I think we could rightly call the great, great danger of dismissing the scriptures. So looking now, picking up right there again, verse 18 of chapter 12, no sooner had the Pharisees and the Herodians kind of slinked off the scene, then we read in verse 18, it says, then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him. Now, we don't hear nearly as much about the Sadducees as we do about the Pharisees. This is actually the only time Mark actually mentions them specifically. Luke, I think, only mentions them one time. John, I don't believe, even mentions them at all. Matthew mentions them a handful of times. And yet the Sadducees were a super interesting group. They were the minority party within religious Judaism, but they also wielded the most power for sure. They were kind of the aristocracy within the Jews. Generally, these were very highly educated and very, very rich, very powerful men. Almost always in Jewish history up to this point, it was a Sadducee who held the office of the high priest. And whoever held the office of high priest, that they were the ones that had all the money and all the power, not that different than political parties today. Once they get into power, they know how to keep that power, right? Sometimes by shuffling things around in order to hold on to it. The very same thing was happening here in Judaism religiously. Now, in terms of what the Sadducees believed, the Sadducees were kind of an ancient version of our modern-day kind of liberal theologians. They were rationalists, okay? So they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the existence of angels. They didn't believe in the existence of spirits. They didn't believe in the existence of demons. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe, as Mark points out here, they didn't believe in the resurrection because they questioned whether or not the soul was even immortal. They questioned whether there even was any kind of a life after death. So what I think is really interesting about the Sadducees as we think about them, especially as religious leaders, is that the Sadducees actually did not believe in more things than they did believe in, right? So you wonder what, you know, (laughs) they wanted to sort of be religious And yet they wanted to do it without having to be or believe in anything that was supernatural. They didn't want to believe in anything that couldn't be explained away by natural law. They would just reject those things, right? Because if they couldn't feel it or see it or hear it or smell it or taste it, and most importantly, if they couldn't understand it, 
they would simply reject it as something they just didn't want to believe in, right? Because it couldn't be verified scientifically, right? It couldn't be seen physically. Now, when we hear about a person like this in our culture today, that's something that sounds pretty intellectual, right? It sounds even enlightened on the surface. You know, these are the people by and large, whom our culture looks at as being the evolved thinkers, right? They are the highly educated. They're theologically open, right? They're, they're progressive. They're kind of the sages of our time. And much the way that people looked at the Sadducees in their time, our, our culture looks at these people as the ones who have it all together, Right? And yet the simple fact of the matter is, is that a person like that, whether they claim to be religious or not, they're still involved in worship, but what they're really engaged in is the worship of their own mind. And consequently, really the worship of the limitations of their minds, though they don't know it. The, the fact is, our human mind, as incredible as it is, each of our minds and therefore our understanding is very finite. It is very, very limited. Right now, if I can understand something fully, it means that that thing or maybe that person, it needs to be smaller than my mind. So my mind can kind of get around it and really understand it. And if it's smaller than my mind, it's smaller than me. And if it's smaller than me, then it's not really worthy of my worship. Why would I worship anything or anyone that is less than me? I'll just go ahead and worship myself, right? Which is exactly what most people do. So this, it's this completely illogical position that the Sadducees took, and this is exactly why they were so sad, you see. Right? I know, it's an old joke, right? But I think everybody is entitled, everybody has the right to hear that at least one time, right? Now, let's all just simply say this. This is a sad group of Sadducees, right? But with the Sadducees then and the theological liberal now, they have to come to recognize that a God that is small enough to understand is not a God who's big enough to worship. When it comes right down to it, that's the choice that everyone has to face concerning God. And you just cannot have it both ways. So anytime you have the finite us in relationship with the infinite God, you are going to have to be okay with some mystery there in that relationship. And simply know and be okay with the fact that any subject that we would try to engage with God after we've hit the limit of our understanding, we have to know that his understanding goes way, way further, so much further beyond that. Now, scripturally speaking, the Sadducees had a sort of an equally skewed approach. These guys only accepted the first five books of Moses, or what we would call the Torah, they only accepted that as being authentic, and they held them in pretty high regard, and yet they would also very conveniently disregard or just simply dismiss any parts of that that they disliked. 
If it didn't work for them, or if they couldn't reconcile what was revealed in Scripture with their own understanding, they would just dismiss it. So this question, right, this doctrinal dilemma, this theological trap that they're now going to propose to Jesus, I think is an interesting one. It's based on a, a, a huge misunderstanding of a very familiar section of what would have been the Old Testament law. So look at the rest of verse 18. It says, they came to him and they asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves her no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, so the Sadducees rightly reference this portion of the law of Moses. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 25. But basically it says that if a Jewish man married a wife, and if he died prematurely before they were able to have children, and specifically to have a son, so that his name wouldn't die out in the history of Israel, but if that happened, the law allowed for the fact, it, it actually commanded that his nearest blood relative, which typically would have been maybe a younger brother who was eligible to do so, that that younger brother would then marry the widow, go into her, raise up a son who they would name after the deceased husband so that his name would be carried on. So the law was what was referred to as Leverite marriage, although it actually has nothing to do with the Levites, as a lot of people think. The word comes from the word Levir, which means brother-in-law. So Leverite marriage is literally marriage with a brother-in-law. And it would not only provide for that name of that deceased husband to carry on, which was very important to the Jews, much more so maybe than it is to us today. But the second thing that it would accomplish for that widowed wife is by virtue of the fact that she finally had a son, it means that now she would have a means of support in her old age. Remember, in those days, children were basically your social security. Now, this custom may sort of sound strange to us, but believe me, it was extremely benevolent in the context of these things within the ancient world. Because around the world, in other cultures, maybe the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, when a man died, particularly if he was a wealthy man, certainly if he was any kind of royalty, they would put him, right, put his dead body in his tomb then they would also put all of his wives, all of his live wives, they would put them in the tomb with his dead body and roll the stone and seal it up. There are cultures around the world where if the husband dies, they build you know, a big funeral pyre, they place his body on it, and then they place the, the body of the wife alive on top of that, and then they burn the whole thing up. Some of the uh, Native American tribes even had ancient customs where if the brave died or the husband died, that the rest of the tribe would go in and plunder the tent, take everything away from the squaw, and just leave her to fend for herself. And my point in all of this is that as strange as this custom of Leverite marriage might sound to us, believe me, this is the one that you wanted, right, in ancient times. This was God's way to, to provide for and to really protect 
that widowed woman. So the Sadducees are kind of going to leverage this Leverite marriage in order really to sort of start to poke fun at the idea of the supernatural. More specifically, watch the way that they use it to poke fun at the whole idea of life after death. So now they're going to precede their trap question with this strange hypothetical situation. Look in verse 20. They say, now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring, and the third likewise. And so the seven had her and left no offspring, and last of all, the woman died also. Now, I don't know about you, but this whole thing sounds kind of like the storyline from a bad movie on the Lifetime channel to me, right? Maybe it's something that you'd see on Unsolved Mystery or, or on one of those like real-life crime drama shows. I, I have to think at one point there would have been some questions raised about this hypothetical woman, right? This very, very dangerous hypothetical woman in this hypothetical drama, right? Nonetheless, right, we have this ridiculous scenario, and all of it we're going to see is just background for what now is an even more ridiculous question, which they're going to ask now in verse 23. So we've got seven dead brothers. We've got the now dead dangerous wife. It says, therefore, in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Right? Surely she can't possibly be married to all seven men in heaven. Therefore, the resurrection is not a reasonable idea. Right? It must be a false doctrine. So this whole story was concocted to try to prove that the resurrection is just ridiculous and even kind of a silly idea, right? It's a ridiculous scenario of silliness. Although, the resurrection was a teaching to which both Jesus and the Pharisees held. Now, I want to say, if we think about it, it, it's not the idea of the resurrection that's actually ridiculous here. What I think is really ridiculous in this scenario is that brothers four, five, six, certainly brother seven, maybe even brother three, what's ridiculous is that these guys all married this same woman, this same dangerous, deadly woman. That is ridiculous to me. The resurrection itself seems much, much more reasonable. But here's what I want you to understand. Where their argument is really going, when Mark says in verse 18 that the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, the point was not that they were doubting the resurrection of Jesus. Right? That's what we think of right? when we think of the resurrection. They didn't even know at this point that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They didn't know about these events that were about to unfold just days from this point of this conversation. What they were doubting was a very standard doctrine at that time, a very standard doctrine of biblical Christianity, that in the future that there will be a resurrection of all people, some of them to eternal life, and some of them to eternal death. 
So they were trying to challenge Jesus on this belief because they thought this was just a crazy biblical concept. So they're trying to make it look as foolish as they can with this silly scenario. And I have to believe that these Sadducees had probably brought this very same silly hypothetical scenario to the Pharisees. Right, as they argued with them probably time after time because the Pharisees believed in all these things. The Pharisees believed in angels. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in the resurrection. Right? They were the, the conservatives theologically. So the Sadducees had probably used this same question over and over again, just kind of mocking and poking fun of the resurrection to the Pharisees. And apparently... Since the Pharisees evidently had not stopped them and hadn't answered their questions biblically, here the Sadducees just continued on to use it, and now they think they're going to use it on Jesus and be successful. Now just think about the irony here. Here they are in their human reason and intellect. They think that they have concocted this conundrum about the resurrection which they were sure was somehow going to trap Jesus, who himself is the resurrection. Right? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And of course they were wrong, and Jesus doesn't hesitate to tell them that. Look at the first half of verse 24. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Now I stopped right there, because understand that just in saying this alone, Jesus has said so much more than we know. Remember, all of this is happening very publicly. It's all happening in the temple courts before probably a huge crowd of people. And so Jesus just publicly declares these men to be mistaken. Other translations say, you know, is this not the reason you are wrong? And I love it, so poetic in the King James, it says, do ye not therefore err, right? However you want to translate it, when he said to the Sadducees, you are wrong, and he said it here in public, you could have heard a pin drop at that moment. If there was anybody who'd been napping during the sermon, right, you can bet that at this moment they would have all woken up just like anybody does for a joke, right, or a, a funny story, right? But everybody's attention was piqued, and they were wondering what in the world is about to happen because nobody ever told these people they were wrong about anything, even though they were wrong about most everything. And what I think is so funny here, and I, I'm pausing, because I think that in so many ways we've come to our, a place in our culture where things are not that different. Where our culture and our society, we won't tell anybody that they're wrong about anything either. We live in a time where even though it should be obvious that some people are wrong and some people are right, people like to imagine, especially for some reason, in matters pertaining to religion or to spiritual things, but most people like to imagine that everyone now is somehow right. Or, more popularly, that everyone's right except for the Christians, right? Christianity seems to be the one religion that everybody thinks is wrong. But you think about this worldview which holds simultaneously that anything and everything can be right when it is in complete contradiction 
with itself, right? With each other, right? Because there's your truth and then there's my truth because really there's no truth. It's insane. One modern philosopher went as far as to say this. He said that the only absolute truth is that there are no absolute truths. Well, the truth is that that is absolutely not true. Absolutely, right? And it's especially interesting. In our text, the word that Jesus used for the word mistaken, it's actually a verb. And it literally means to lead astray. And so what he's essentially saying is, you are deceiving yourselves. And I think that's important because that's what it takes for someone to get that far away from truth. And yet it's what we see around us every day. People are actively working at deceiving themselves so they can simply believe in whatever their new version of the truth is. And yet Jesus knew the Sadducees were wrong about what they thought about life and death, and he told them, you are wrong. And now he's about to tell them where they were wrong, and in fact, these guys were wrong in two different ways. So now he's going to give us two major reasons why they were wrong. Look at them in the rest of verse 24. He answered, he said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. They didn't know the Bible and they didn't know God's power. And this is the great core problem of the Sadducees. And it is exactly why they were so sad, you see. Because it takes both of those things to really make a disciple of God. And it certainly takes both of those things to make a Christian. And both of these things are so important that now Jesus is going to elaborate. He's kind of going to expand on both of those concepts. But he's going to do it actually in reverse order. The first thing he's going to deal with is the fact that they didn't know the power of God. Or they had missed the power of God. So look at that in verse 25. Again, talking about these hypothetical brothers and this hypothetical multi-widowed wife, all dead now in the afterlife and who's, you know, who's married to who. But Jesus explains that these guys are wrong just in their question. He says in verse 25 that when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the very first thing that the Sadducees didn't grasp is that God has power to raise people from the dead into this eternal state and that when he does it, he's going to establish a whole new order of life after death and marriage isn't even a central issue in that order. That at some point that we're all going to be like angels. Now, don't misunderstand this. Jesus did not say that we are going to somehow become angels. You know, you'll hear that at a funeral sometimes where people will say, oh, you know, he or she, they got their wings, you know. Well, people are not angels and angels are not people and there is no indication that we will ever have wings. I'm sorry if that's disappointing. We're probably not going to have harps either. Right? But Jesus likens us to the angels in the eternal state because he says we're not either going to be married or need to be married. Because marriage is an institution of God for this life only, 
on this earth only, and it does not carry over into the life to come. We will not be married in heaven. Now, again, I know that may be very, very disappointing to many of you. It may be very exciting news for some of you. <laughs> right? I'm just going to you can go to the marriage ministry or something. If, But the Sadducees were so mistaken because nowhere does the Bible teach anywhere that that husband-wife relationship in this life continues into the life to come. This was just an assumption that they made, a wrong assumption that went way beyond what the scriptures revealed. In heaven, there's not going to be any need for marriage on a physical level because there's not going to be any need for procreation, right? There's no need for repopulation. Nobody dies in heaven. Nobody dies in eternity. So because there's no death, we don't need to reproduce people. Now, additionally, there won't be any need for marriage on an emotional level or on an intellectual level because all of us, whether we're male or female, our single great focus in heaven is going to be our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. Because what the Bible teaches is that in heaven and even now, but in heaven, the Lord Jesus, he is our groom and we are his bride. You think about that beautiful passage that Paul writes to the Ephesians where he's talking about marriage, but he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And then later in that chapter, he says, but I, I speak of the church and Christ. Right? We are being prepared even here and now for an eternity to be spent with our bridegroom Jesus. And everything for eternity will be all about that relationship. So all of our needs for intimacy and love and fulfillment and joy, all of those things that we find now personally in part in that marriage relationship, but we're all going to find it corporately and collectively and completely in our new marriage for eternity to the Lamb of God. Because we are going to wonder at him and we are going to worship him for all of eternity. But again, the issue here isn't really even about marriage. right? The issue is about power. It's about the power of God to raise us and to change us. And this is where the Sadducees failed. Again, they were naturalists. They were rationalists, materialists, modernists. Right? They objected, as we said, to anything that was supernatural, anything they couldn't count or calculate in their minds by themselves. And they had forgotten to account for God's power. They'd forgotten to factor in God's ability to make us and to change us into something different for all of eternity. They just hadn't put that into, into the equation. And this very same lack of, of understanding and an appreciation of God's power, it still leads people today into making the same kind of a Sadducean error. And here's what I mean. You might be reading something in the Bible. You might hear a doctrine declared in Scripture. You might be faced with a, a, a Bible difficulty. And if you don't factor God's power into the equation 
then you just assume that the scripture you read or that doctrine you heard is an impossible falsehood because you've not considered the power of God to make it into a reality. You've not put his incredible ability and his transcendence into this equation. And maybe this will help. You think about some of the most misunderstood issues in the Bible or issues of our faith from the creation itself to the story of the, the worldwide flood to the inspiration and the preservation of the scriptures to the doctrine of the Trinity or to miracles, to healings or to the great fish that swallowed up Jonah. Now, people read these things, they struggle to understand these things, they have problems with these things simply because they have failed to factor in the power of God. Right? I'll say it again because it's so important. We need to be comfortable to accept and to embrace some mystery in our relationship with God because if we fully understood God, we would be God. And we don't, and guess what? We're not. And, and at the risk of oversimplifying this, there is absolutely truth, I think, to that old saying that says that if you can get past the first verse in the Bible, the rest is easy. Right? What's the first verse? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you believe Genesis 1.1, you really should have no problem believing the rest of the Bible because any God who was big enough to have created the heavens and the earth is also big enough to do all of the rest of the things that the Bible says that he did and still does. Even if we don't understand why or how, that's why we call it faith. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Paul did not say we need to keep walking with God as long as we understand everything he's doing. There comes a point in our faith where we need to exercise that faith, and that's what the Sadducees didn't do, which is precisely why they were very sad, you see. Right? So... The next time that you're facing something that looks impossible from your perspective, please don't fail like a sad, sad you see. Don't fail to factor in God's incredible power. That very same creative power that spoke the world into existence can speak into the reality of your dilemma and he can bring healing and restoration and bring life where all that we can see is death. So this was part of the heart of the error of the Sadducees, right? They didn't know the power of God. And Jesus just made it very clear, right, where he stands on the supernatural and the afterlife and angels and the resurrection. Now he's going to go on and start to address what is really the root cause of their error. And this is important to us. So everybody stretch. Seriously, like stretch. Get the, right? Stay with me here. They didn't understand God's power because they didn't understand his word, right? They missed the power of God because they had dismissed the word of God. So this is the second part of what caused them to be wrong. And Jesus now sort of expounds on that beginning in verse 26. He says, but concerning the dead that they rise, 
He says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God speaks to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Now, I love what Jesus does here, because keep in mind, he's already answered their ridiculous question. Right? He's already answered the question about the woman and the brothers and the marriage and all that. He's already shown them very clearly and very publicly why they were wrong theologically. But Jesus goes on further. He's trying to get them to think about what's at the root of that. Right? To think about their theological position that didn't allow for the supernatural. He's trying to get them to rethink and to kind of enlarge their thinking about the scriptures and what the scriptures clearly revealed. And it's amazing to me, <coughs> pardon me, he's still trying to get through to these guys. He still wants to get through to these men, even though he knows that at this moment, they are planning his death. That's amazing to me. Right? So Jesus addresses this kind of, I don't believe in the resurrection, big theological position, and he brings them all the way back to what we know as Exodus 3 and 4. Now, he didn't call it that because they didn't call it that at this point. He simply refers to it as the burning bush passage. Remember, the chapter designations in our Bible were added later to make it more clear, right? The chapter divisions came in about A.D. 1200. The, the Hebrew Old Testament was divided into verses in about the 1400s. The New Testament verses came around in the 1500s. So at any rate, the, the Sadducees knew exactly where Jesus was heading. He takes them back to Moses, who, remember, they respected and they revered. He takes them to that familiar story where the Lord first reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush before he was going to call Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. And every Jew would have known this passage. And then Jesus quotes where Moses quotes what the Lord says to him from the bush, which is that I am, in the present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus very plainly declares that he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the point that he's making here, understand, the events recorded in the book of Exodus occurred hundreds of years after the death of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yet here in the book of Exodus, God speaks of all these men not as being dead, but he speaks of them all as being alive, very much alive, and that he had this continuing relationship with them as their covenant-keeping God, even though they had all died physically long, long before, right? And just to make sure then that the point wasn't lost on them, he declares what is the very obvious conclusion from the passage, that if God was in a current present tense relationship with these men hundreds of years after their death, then there must be a resurrection from the dead, right? That when a person dies physically, that he continues then again to live on spiritually in some sort of a, a resurrected state. There must be life after death. It was as clear cut as it could be. It was as plain to see as it could be if they had been looking for it. 
And again, one more thing I think is amazing about this. Remember, the Sadducees didn't consider any of the rest of the Old Testament as being authoritative. They only gave weight and authority to these first five books, right? To the Torah, the law of Moses. They didn't give any weight to anything beyond that. Now, if Jesus had been talking to a Pharisee who gave great weight to the inspiration of God to the entirety of the Old Testament, Jesus could have spoken to them about the proof of the resurrection from dozens of scriptures, dozens of places all sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, one of the strongest being in Daniel 12, where the Bible declares that multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Right? That sounds like the resurrection to me, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel was very clear, but because the Sadducees were so sad, you see, because they didn't give any authority to the book of Daniel or to the prophets or to the Psalms, what Jesus does is that he clearly shows them that even in the Torah, even in the Pentateuch, even in those first five books of the law of Moses, even they confirm the truth of the resurrection. Talk about meeting people where they were. It was plainly there for them to see if they were only open to actually see it. And believe me, if you were a Sadducee there that morning and you were there trying to trap Jesus, this would have been one of those moments where all the blood just goes out of your head because your entire worldview was just shattered. Right? These were learned theologians who for years and years had gone through those first five books of Moses with a fine-tooth comb, and they're standing there wondering, how in the world did we miss Exodus 3.6? So here they are now standing here looking like idiots in front of Jesus, exposed to the crowds as the multitudes are hearing all this. It would have been like a bomb went off because they realized that what Jesus had just done is that in two sentences, he had completely disproved and dismantled an entire sect of Judaism in his day. And he did it by quoting one passage from the scriptures. Because the word of God is what? It's living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And here we see it piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of these men. And what's interesting, if any of you history buffs care, and the rest of you are just going to have to sit through it, but here with these Sadducees, right, remember, we're talking about the aristocracy of the religious world there in Israel. And this is a group now that effectively will cease to exist any longer in just 30 years from this moment in our text. Right, in AD 70, when the Romans sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, we do not hear about the Sadducees anymore. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, they're not called Pharisees any longer, they're called the Hasid, right, or Hasidic, or they're called the Hasidim. So there is still Hasidim in Israel today. It's the ultra-Orthodox religious arm of Judaism. So the Pharisees are still going strong, but the Sadducees now cease to exist. 
But here's what we need to understand as we consider how this text really impacts us personally, is that though the sect of the Sadducees no longer exists as a, a recognized kind of a religious group, we certainly see that the spirit of Sadduceeism is alive and well and is thriving, not only in the world today, but even within the church today. Because as simply as we can say it, people still do not know, right? Christians do not know the power of God because they do not know the word of God. And there are so many believers who are living lives that are less than what God wants for them because they know less about God than he wants them to and that he has so painstakingly taken the time and gone to such great lengths to reveal to us in his word. There are so many Christian Sadducees today. We don't call them Sadducees. We call them progressive Christians. Right? We call them liberal Christians. That's what they're called. But entire sections of the professing church today who refuse to accept the Bible as being inerrant or as being inspired by God. They refuse to accept this book as being the foundation for what we believe and how we live. They refuse to accept all the supernatural events and the realities of the Christian life that are recorded in the Bible as being true. They refuse to believe in the supernatural part of our Christian life. So they deny the, the divine inspiration of the scripture. They deny the inerrancy of the scripture. They explain away God's miracles from the scriptures. They deny the virgin birth. They deny his bodily resurrection three days after he was dead on the cross. They deny the existence of sin. They deny the Bible's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. They deny the reality that there will be a future judgment. They deny the existence and the reality of hell. They deny the triunity of God. They deny the deity of Christ, the fact that he was and is God in human flesh. And on and on we go with all the things that they deny. What's the point of even claiming to be a Christian? The Sadducees are very much alive and well and very powerful in our day because what they believe is much, much more palatable in our day, isn't it? It's exactly what Paul warned Timothy, that the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And yet Jesus still looks at them and he very plainly declares them to be wrong. For the very same reason he said these men were wrong, because they did not know their whole Bible. Remember, the Sadducees knew parts of their Bible. They knew bits and pieces of the Bible, but they didn't know the whole Bible. They accepted and they, they kept the things they liked, but they rejected and they dismissed the things they didn't like, right? It was like a buffet Bible approach. And that's exactly how so many Christians today are trying to do Christianity. So the, the question for this morning, do you really know the Bible? Do we really know the Bible this morning personally and individually, or do we just know bits and pieces from the Bible? Do we know one section here, right? Maybe we've got a few favorite verses in Romans. Maybe we got eight verses we like in Ephesians. Maybe there's a whole chapter that we really like in the Revelation. 
Or do we know the whole Bible as Christians from Genesis all the way to Revelation? Because it is more important today than ever before. And I don't, I try not to sound like Chicken Little up here, but believe me, we don't live in the same country that existed spiritually 100 years ago or even 50 or even 20 years ago. We live in a country and a culture that has changed so very dramatically, spiritually speaking, concerning the Bible and concerning the understanding of the Bible and concerning building definitions of right and wrong that are based on the Bible. We live in a time where Christianity in this nation, where it is critical for us to know the whole Bible for ourselves and not be content just to know one section of scripture here and then not to know a section there. We need the whole thing. A.W. Tozer had very famously written, this will sound familiar, I hope. He says, nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. All 66 books written by 40 different authors over 40 generations, over 1,500 years, on three different continents, in three different languages, with one central theme, no contradictions, and the only way that that could possibly be possible is because God himself was the one who wrote it. Right? All scripture is breathed out by God, the scripture says, and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all of it together, the whole of the Bible together, is what completes or equips us for all the things that God has for us. So the Old Testament does its thing, and the law does its thing, and the Psalms do its thing, and the prophets do their thing, the Gospels do its thing, and the epistles do their thing in our lives. Right? All of this teaching and reproof and correction and training and encouragement, right? And it takes the whole mixture of all of those things together to produce within us the kind of Christianity that God wants us to have in order for us to be complete and to be protected from this error that is increasingly around us and it's not going away. It's that error of liberalism or Sadduceeism, which then leads to that second problem that they had, right? They dismissed the word of God, so they missed out on the power of God. So many Christians today don't know the power of God. Do you realize that God personally stands behind every promise that he gives us in this book. He stands behind every command that he gives us in this book, every line, every paragraph, every word, every jot, every tittle. He stands behind everything in this book. He never gives us a promise. He never makes us a command, except that he then gives us the supernatural ability and the power to make that promise a real reality in our lives or to enable us to obey that commandment that he's given us for our lives. And it's unless we understand this, if we don't understand that there's real power available, if we don't understand that, then we spend our Christian lives kind of trapped in this place right between Romans 7 and Romans 8. Now you Bible students, you know what I'm talking about, right? For the rest of us, this is where the Apostle Paul, right, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived, he cries out in the frustration of his own experience. At the end of Romans 7, he says, For I do not do the good that I want to do, 
But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. So the great frustration is that it was how to do the things he knew were good. Now, does that sound familiar in any of our lives? So Paul would read the scriptures. He would understand the things that Jesus commanded. And he says, I see that those things are good and I want to do it. But Paul says, what I lack is the ability, right? The how. I lack the power to live that kind of a life. And then finally, realizing that he couldn't live the Christian life in his own strength, what does he do? He cries out for something that's beyond him. In the very, the very end of Romans 7, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, <coughs> who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? Who will deliver me from this life that's dominated by sin? Not what will deliver me, but who will deliver me? And then he goes on as we roll right into Romans 8. He tells us exactly who it would be that would deliver him. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then we have all the rest of Romans chapter 8, which is a chapter that is absolutely filled with this beautiful revelation and this thorough instruction concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. He is the power behind God's word. So behind every encouragement, behind every expectation, behind every command, behind every what is the how of the Holy Spirit. So behind every what that we're supposed to do is the how we're supposed to do it and that is in his power. That's the power of God that the Sadducees today do not know. Paul summed it up for the church at Philippi like this. He said that it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit that gives us the desire to do God's word gives us the desire to make those promises our own, and then also gives us the ability, right? He enables us with the power to obey it and to make those promises a reality in our lives. And unless we know that power, then all the Bible becomes for us is a complete frustration. And why wouldn't we want to just dismiss it, right? Because it seems to set this impossible standard right there before us that we just try and we try to live up to in our own strength, but we can't do it. So pretty soon we don't want to turn to the Bible because all it seems to do is mock us and the lack of spiritual power that we have, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is not just us attempting to imitate Christ in our own strength, it's Christianity is nothing less than the supernatural imparting of God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit into each and every one of our lives. So that then he provides us with the how of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the what of his word. But if we don't know the word, we won't experience the power. So, the very simple takeaway for today is don't be a sad Sadducee. Know your Bible and know the power. We need both. We need to mature in our understanding and our knowledge of the scriptures. We also need to mature in our faith in the power of God. 
God wants us to have both, and only then will we start to really experience the Christianity that Jesus intends us. So the way to avoid the tragic error of the Sadducees, the way for us at this hour in human history, believe me, it swallows up a lot of people. But number one, we need to know our Bibles, and we need to know them from end to end, and we need not to believe that knowing our Bibles is something that is true just of the extraordinary kind of Christians, right? It's true for every Christian. And number two, we need to believe that the supernatural of God stands behind every one of those commands and every promise and every exhortation and every encouragement, every chapter, every paragraph, every line, every word. And when we come to that point, my goodness, what a victorious and what a vibrant kind of a Christian life opens up to us right then. Amen? Now we're going to close out today by celebrating communion. Communion, of course, we do, we look back at Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. We look ahead to his promised return for us. And we look at, it was that sacrifice on the cross that made everything we talked about today into a reality. It's that sacrifice on the cross that makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to come in to our lives and for that power of God to be imparted into us so that we can live out this life that Jesus paid so much to purchase. So as we go to this time of communion, I would encourage you to reflect on those things. To reflect not simply on the forgiveness of sins that we have, which is amazing to begin with. Not just to, to be focused on heaven, to be focused on the life here and now that he enables us to live. It's not just heaven later, it's heaven right now. Amen? Through our communion and our, and our, uh, our intimacy with Jesus here. So, as I say each and every time, communion here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View is open to anyone who is a believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then communion is for you. You don't, you don't need to show us your church membership card. We don't care where you go to church. If you're here with us today, you're part of our family, and we want you to enjoy communion. If you're not yet a Christian, then communion really isn't for you. Because again, it's something that we as Christians do to look back at something that Jesus did for us. If you want to become a Christian so that you can take communion, as I say each time, Pastor Jeff is here and his wife Anne is over here. They would love to answer questions that you have, um, to pray with you on, on how it is that you can start that, um, that walk in that relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to invite Fior to come back up and she's going to lead us in some worship. Uh, and as she does, feel free to, to come on up as we worship and you can take the communion elements and you can take them back to your seats and just spend some time with the Lord and just reflecting on these things. Um, you know, have a two-way conversation with the Lord. If there's things that he needs to, to show you that he wants to put his finger on, this is a great time um, to, to make yourself available for him to do that. And then um, go ahead and partake of the elements when you are ready. And uh, when we're done, I'll come back up and we will uh, be finished. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity to celebrate um, just the most wonderful sacrifice that we could imagine. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrificial death 
of your son Jesus on the cross. Lord, we thank you for all that it provided for us, Lord, and for all that it really produces within us. <coughs> we, Father, we pray that as we do this, Lord, that it would be something we don't just do uh, routinely, month to month, Lord, but that it would be something fresh and new today, Lord. Make it something, something fresh. Give us a fresh view of the cross this morning, we pray, Lord. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.